welcome to Tech Tales. I'm Corbin Davenport. And I'm Cody Toombs. And today we're back for more Internet Explorer. Yay. We haven't had enough of it. Nope, we still got we still got a <laughs> long way to go. We're not anywhere near the end yet. Oh, such a long way to go. This is like the history of Internet Explorer is like the history of the Ottoman Empire. It somehow just keeps going. In the in the last episode, we talked about the release of Internet Explorer 4.0, and we talked about how the U.S. government officially started its antitrust lawsuit against Microsoft, which began on May 8th of 1998. So we're we're in the we're in the lawsuit now. We we made it. <laughs> we're we're officially a true crime podcast. Yeah, what everyone looks forward to, the legal stuff. Yeah. We won't actually talk about like too much of the the actual courtroom kind of stuff because a, a lot of the stuff they bring up we've talked about in this series already and also in other episodes of Tech Tales. <laughs> so, I don't need to spend too much time on that cuz I think we're all we we've all got the picture that Microsoft did some some not great things here. So, Windows 98 was released in May of 1998, the same month the antitrust lawsuit started, and Windows 98 included a copy of Internet Explorer 4.01, which was the first time Internet Explorer was pre-installed with a version of Windows. So, it's not a optional package thing like it was for 95. It's not like a, some OEMs have it and some of them don't. It's just if you if you buy a PC with Windows 98, it's going to have Internet Explorer on it. Well, of course, every every computer did in fact need a way to go download a different browser. Yeah, we're we're almost to the point where you could go download Firefox. <laughs> yes. Um, in September of 1998, a few months later, a report from the International Data Corporation showed that Internet Explorer had passed Netscape Navigator in popularity for the first time. So. This whole time, Internet Explorer has been trailing Netscape, and sometime around late 1998 is when that finally swaps. According to that report, Internet Explorer had 48.3% of the browser market locked in, with Netscape having 41.5%. Now, there is a little bit of a catch to that, in that the, the share of Internet Explorer also included the customized version distributed by America Online that was used when you were using AOL. And that browser on its own was 16.3%. But still, so as a whole, they're all using IE. And later that year, AOL would purchase Netscape. And then from that point on, its browser would be based on Navigator and not IE. But that would never end up changing things. No, no. And... Then um, AOL got tossed around uh, parent companies. Yeah, tossed around is one way to put it. So the main trial for the antitrust lawsuit took place at the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia from October 19th of 1988 to June 24th of 1999 under Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson. And we'll talk more about that judge later. Um. Only 12 witnesses testified from each side, and Microsoft CEO Bill Gates was not called as a witness, but he did 
get a um, they recorded a deposition for him, which was used in the trial. So he wasn't on the stand, but they did ask him a lot of questions on video, and he was not happy during it. And now, Cody, we're going to watch part of that deposition. Ooh, exciting. So, yeah, we're only going to watch part of this. If you want to watch the deposition, it's on YouTube. We'll also have a link in the show notes. It's very long, but we're just going to watch part of it. So, you ready, Cody? Yes. Okay. Click play in three, two, one, click. And Microsoft has uh, marketed a web browser uh, under the trade name Internet Explorer. Is that correct? We've used the term Internet Explorer to refer to the Internet technologies in Windows as well as some standalone products we've done. Let me see if you uh, agree with uh, this definition uh, in the 1997 edition of Microsoft's Computer Dictionary. The definition is of the term Internet Explorer. <coughs> uh, Internet Explorer is defined as follows. Microsoft's web browser introduced in October 1995. Is that Accurate definition of the Internet Explorer? I'm not sure why they say October. I don't think that's right. Uh, when is your recollection that it was introduced? Well, we shipped Windows 95, including browsing functionality, in August 1995. Was IE shipped as a standalone product uh, in or about October 1995? No. Was it ever shipped as a standalone product? Well, it depends on what you're referring to. You're talking about Unix or the Macintosh. We did create a set of bits that stood by themselves and could be installed on top of those operating systems. <coughs> when were uh, those versions of IE uh, first marketed? Certainly not in October 1995. Uh, Apart from uh, the timing issue, would you agree that Internet Explorer is defined here correctly as Microsoft's web browser? And did you actually read what was in there? Uh, yeah, I read the uh, the first sentence. I could read you the whole thing if you'd like. Well, it seems strange. If you're trying to use a dictionary, you might as well read what it says. Uh, you can show it to me. Yeah, I'll read it to you and I'll show it to you. <laughs> Tell me if there's anything else in here you think is inaccurate, okay? Uh, the full entry... Uh, under Internet Explorer, reads as follows. Microsoft's web browser introduced in October 1995. Internet Explorer is now available in Windows and Macintosh versions. Later versions provide the ability to incorporate advanced design and animation features into web pages and recognize ActiveX controls and Java applets. Take a look at it. Tell me if there's anything else in there you think is accurate. Wow, that's some, uh, definitely some evasion going on there. Yeah, the the audio quality there isn't great, but basically what's happening there is the the U.S. government's argument in this case is that Internet Explorer is a separate thing from Windows. And if it's a separate thing, then what Microsoft is doing is anti-competitive bundling. Microsoft's argument is that, no, it's not a separate thing. It's like completely interwoven with windows someone is asking microsoft ceo bill gates does he agree with the definition of internet explorer in the microsoft dictionary and they're going back and forth about the the exact definition of things um and yeah that's that was kind of 
uh, a lot of the news reporting from the time was like, yeah, Bill Gates is being like really, really not cooperative. He's he he's being asked a very clear question, and he, and he wants to focus on the exact month as opposed to discussing the actual question. That that's yeah, that's some evasion. Not that I blame him. I mean, to be fair, one of the things that if you're going into a deposition, you're usually coached, especially if you're kind of in a defensive position, you're kind of coached to specifically avoid talking about certain things. And very specifically, you're typically told, like, focus on details, find details and call out anything that sounds wrong in any way, shape and form. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same it's the same thing we see every time a tech CEO is put in front of Congress to answer questions and they're all like, well, you know, I don't know about that. Or, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you later with an answer. Yeah. But I do want to bring up one thing that happened, which is, it's just, it, it's kind of a good example of like how, I, I don't know what, what the right word is, but like kind of all over the place this is where it doesn't really feel like anyone's making substantial grounds, except sometimes they make Microsoft look stupid. <laughs> so again, the Justice Department is trying to prove that Internet Explorer is not fully integrated into Windows. So at some point, the Justice Department brought in a computer science professor from Princeton University as a witness whose argument was that Internet Explorer was not a core component of Windows, like Microsoft claimed. So I'm going to read an article from Joel Brinkley from the New York Times on December 12th of 1998. He said, quote, The expert, Dr. Edward W. Felton, who will take the stand in federal court on Monday as a witness for the government in its antitrust lawsuit against Microsoft, was asked by the Justice Department to puncture a central argument in Microsoft's defense, namely that the browser and operating system are inextricably integrated. In direct written testimony made public this evening, Dr. Felton said that Microsoft could have produced a version of Windows 98 without web browsing in a way that did not adversely affect users or developers of other software programs. Microsoft, in a statement issued this evening, said that Dr. Felton did not actually remove Internet Explorer from Windows. The statement said he only hid some of the functionality it provides, which does not benefit consumers. You can surgically remove someone's right arm, but the arm was certainly a useful part of the person's body before it was removed. Dr. Felton, an assistant professor of computer science with a PhD in computer science and engineering, said he had studied the programmer's original instructions or source code for both Windows 95 and Windows 98 with two graduate student assistants. He and his students found that Internet Explorer was hardwired to the operating system so that it was invoked in many circumstances, even if the user had designated another program as the computer's default web browser. So they wrote what he called a prototype removal program that deleted some files and altered others to clip the hardwire connections so that users could not gain access to Internet Explorer by any means. Microsoft says that removing IE will break Windows 98, but Dr. Felton testified, the prototype removal program does not prevent 98 from booting properly, nor does it affect the stability of Windows 98 under ordinary use. Microsoft could have produced a version of Windows 98 without web browsing in a way that did not adversely affect the non-web browsing features. Quote. 
it's funny because it's obviously meant to be a gotcha, but at the same time, that really comes across as, to anyone who is a developer, at least, as sort of saying, yeah, uh, if you write a whole bunch of code to replace something, obviously you can replace the thing. And that's kind of what he did. I mean, it it's valid. It, he obviously did re remove a bunch of functionality and did make it work, but you got to wonder how much, uh, how much did they have to write in order to functionally replace it and quote unquote clip the wires? I'm not defending Microsoft here. I'm just, I, it, it leaves questions. Yeah. Yeah, like what he's supposedly done is made a version of Windows without Internet Explorer. But you can't actually remove all that because there's some parts of the system, whether you know they need to or not, require that functionality to be in there. So he's just kind of like edited what he can and mm. you know disconnected the, the parts of Windows that are like, always open this with IE, which... You know, like I'm, I read that I'm like, wow, that's just like in Windows 11, <laughs> where like if you click on a search result from the start menu, it will always open an edge. You cannot change it. And someone actually wrote a tool to make those always open in your default web browser and Microsoft flagged it as a virus. Microsoft responded to that evidence by creating a video demonstration of Windows 98 with Internet Explorer removed using the professor's program. That videotape was two hours long, and they made a big deal of showing the problems created by the program, like there was supposedly slower performance and issues with online services. One engineer on the tape said, quote, It is taking a very long time, unusually long. That is a result of the performance degradation that has occurred because of running the Felton program, quote. What happens then is that that tape is provided to the Justice Department, and a Justice Department attorney pointed out in a frame of the tape that there is a title bar on a window that says Internet Explorer instead of Windows 98, which seemed to indicate Internet Explorer was not actually removed from the demo PC. <laughs> now, at this point, Microsoft Senior Vice President James E. Alchin was on the stand, and he initially said, quote, they filmed the wrong system, quote. Then later in the day stated it was the modified PC, but the text just wasn't removed for some reason, even though the program definitely removed that. So then we learn that the test PC was probably not using a fresh install of Windows 98, and that the performance differences could have been from other programs installed on the PC instead of just that professor's program. And then uh, finally, Microsoft's manager of software developer relations, Todd Nelson, said that the installation program for Prodigy Online removed a registry key that changed the title bar back to Internet Explorer. So that, so basically we've learned nothing. <laughs> Except that Microsoft was, like, kind of not doing this well. It's definitely not a credible, in-good-faith demonstration. No, because the whole, the whole point of the experiment is we're comparing 
regular Windows 98 to regular Windows 98 plus the professor's program. But the demo PC had at least one other thing installed. It could have had other stuff too. So now we've, we've ruined the scientific method. And that wasn't a good look for Microsoft. But also, again, like the program was like, it didn't like really remove Internet Explorer. It's kind of questionable what it was doing. So I don't think we learned anything. <laughs> yeah. Even, even if there were no dubious moves, even if it was, it's not, it's not guaranteed to be a fair, accurate comparison. Yeah. There's a lot of other evidence brought up of like ways Microsoft was maybe modifying windows to like to cut out competitors um apple alleged in the lawsuit that microsoft deliberately sabotaged quicktime player in favor of windows media player because quicktime player would not run on windows 98 and microsoft demonstrated that the problem apple is referring to was a bug with quicktime's installer and microsoft's own engineers were able to fix the problem in two days supposedly after that, the Justice Department was going to use Apple's thing as evidence, but they decided not to, even though at that point Microsoft had already prepared its own tape as counter evidence to QuickTime being broken. <laughs> so I think it's kind of expected that new operating system releases break some stuff. Like that's just a thing that happens. I don't know if that was malicious. What I think was could have been the most likely scenario is someone at Microsoft or someone beta testing Windows 98 pointed out that QuickTime Player wasn't working because it was a popular app. Someone probably tried that and they just didn't report it to Apple. That could have happened, I think. But even that's a little like tinfoil hat. A lot stands out in that. For starters... At that point in history, new versions of operating systems were still kind of a new thing. It, like, people weren't used to getting major OS updates more than ever, more than a few years apart. Or, sorry, less than a few years apart. So, you know, you, <laughs> like, obviously, like, the difference between 95 and 98, there was, there was a big shift there, so... Three years apart was actually considered relatively fast at that stage. So, you know, breaking software, yeah, was kind of expected, but I I don't know. I think most people weren't really, most people didn't really think about it. Like it, it was just assumed a lot of stuff would probably break just because it was, it was big updates. These days we would be offended at the idea of stuff breaking between versions uh, even though it happens all the time. Yeah, like PCs at this point definitely had a, a huge library of software, but going back five or ten years, every new computer that was coming out was incompatible with all software yeah. created for the previous computer. So even this idea of like everything should keep working was was kind of new. Yeah, even even down to the OS, like literally you you had very good odds that the computer you were running, say, Windows 95 on, very possibly could not actually run Windows 98 on day one. Like, eventually drivers would come out, there'd be ways you could get it working, but 
it actually was not that much of a guarantee, which somehow today is actually still a problem as we hear about Windows 11 issues left and right. Yeah. But yeah, this it, this was a reality. Like you just it, so much software even specifically came with like here are here are the requirements. It wasn't really minimum requirements so much as this is designed to run on say Windows 95. And that was it. Like it might actually not run on 98 because they never intended it to run on 98. Uh that all that being said, uh also Apple did not have a good history for writing <laughs> software for Windows. I mean, it, you can name a lot of companies out there that had kind of hit and miss history. Apple at this time wrote the worst software for Windows. So the fact that it didn't run could so easily come down to Apple. Yeah, and we we were just a few short years away from iTunes for Windows, which is the <laughs> the most cursed piece of software ever created. Even for even on Macs, it's it was cursed. So while all that fun stuff was going on, on March 18th of 1999, Microsoft released Internet Explorer 5.0 after 2 million people downloaded the beta version. This update was included with Windows 98 Second Edition, and it was bundled with Office 2000. According to Microsoft, it had a 25% performance boost compared to IE4, and 30-60% to 60 faster performance than Netscape Navigator 4.5, which was its main competitor at the time. The Windows version introduced Windows Radio Toolbar, which was a feature that had access to 300 radio stations worldwide so you could listen to radio while you're while you're browsing i think it was um real player real player wasn't happy about that because <laughs> that <laughs> was that was their thing anyway again this update also continued to expand microsoft's goal of getting internet service providers to distribute ie so alongside this version they released a version of Internet Explorer Administration Kit, which allowed other companies to release versions of Internet Explorer that had different buttons and menu items and toolbars. So a lot of ISPs use this for like quicker access to their services within IE. As far as like uh, like web features goes, this is the first version that has the XML HTTP request API in JavaScript, which uh, later became known as Ajax, which was a pretty big deal. Pretty much for the first time, web pages could continue to update and maintain network connections after the page was done loading, which we, that just seems normal now. But back then it, you couldn't really do that. You needed to use a plugin. Yeah, I remember this well. Yeah. This was also the first web browser with favicons which appeared in the favorites bar, which was like IE's bookmarks, and the address bar. So this is the first time we get those uh, web icons that I'm sure we've all seen everywhere. And they're still a thing. This is, this is like one of the few features that Internet Explorer was first to that we've all decided to keep. <laughs> this one was actually a pretty decent idea. So you, you called it Fava Icons? Favicon? I said Favicon. Oh, Favicon. Is there an A? Or are there two A's? 
pretty sure it's just fav icon. Yeah, it's F-A-V and then icon. But I've always heard it favicon, but not like fav icon. Okay, I guess it could be both. I could well, see both. It, yeah, I don't know. I've always known it as fav icon. Favicon's fun. Anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, now, there was a fun quirk with this version of IE with favicons. You know, nowadays when we're browsing the web, if a website has an icon, it just appears when you load the page next to the, usually next to where the title is. Internet Explorer 5 only loaded the favicon if a site was added to favorites. So for a while, if you were running a website, you could tell how many people added your website to their favorites list by how many pings you got on the favicon icon file. Oh, geez. (laughs) So eventually Internet Explorer started loading those just anytime you visited a website. So they, that didn't last long, but that was a fun thing to do for a while. Who doesn't like to know this stuff? I mean, hey, that, that was the early days of analytics. Yeah, this is a wild west. Another interesting feature that this version added was the addition of what Microsoft called HTML application or HTAs which were basically you could you could create an html file and then rename it to hta and it would be displayed like a windows program so like when you open it it wouldn't show ie or whatever browser and you could set like a custom icon for stuff and these hdas could run activex and other uh, plugin stuff so it was kind of like an early version of like electron that kind of stuff where it's like the the early stages of this idea of taking web content and making it look like it's a native program mm-hmm. and of course those htas were a massive security problem <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh there were there were several pretty high profile security risks right i believe they were like hda files embedded in emails or something and someone would open them and then Here's an ActiveX control that's doing something. Also, Internet Explorer 5 was the last version to support Windows 3.1 and Windows NT 3.51. So I said earlier that the Windows version was released on March 18th of 1999. We don't get the Mac version until January 5th of 2000. So almost a full year. This ends up being the most significant update to Internet Explorer on the Mac ever. Spoiler alert, this is the last major version. But, (laughs) like, it was, this was a pretty huge update. And in many ways, it was more technically impressive than the Windows browser because this was mostly developed by Microsoft's Mac business unit, which was the same division that was making, like, Office for Mac and MSN for Mac and, and that kind of stuff. Internet Explorer 5 for Mac had an overhaul design with buttons and other elements that looked a little bit like early Mac OS X, but they actually made this before Apple showed off the Aqua design that would later come on OS X. So Internet Explorer was ahead of the curve there. And that would also turn out to be the last time Internet Explorer was ahead of the curve on Liter- something. Literally, it's just it's just the favicons and this. That's the only two times. <laughs> <laughs> And this browser was also customizable. So when you're running this, you could change the colors of the buttons and scroll bars. 
and you could choose from a few different colors. And the really cool part, you know, during this time, this was when Apple was starting to ship like their colorful Macs. Like we got the first iMac around this time. Mm. So if you had an iMac, Internet Explorer would detect what color Mac it was and could change the web browser to match. I don't know if they were just checking like the serial number or something. I don't know. Uh oh, I remember hearing something about this. I could oh, I I'm reluctant to say it cuz I could be way off base here, but I swear I remember hearing that Apple intentionally added an API for doing this. Hmm. Um okay. Yeah, it was I believe supposed to actually be a thing other developers would do, but I don't know if they ever made it public. But it, like they I know they added the API or or I think they did. I'm pretty confident they did, but then I don't know if it was ever actually like turned into a public thing that they announced or if they just shared this with some developers like Microsoft. At which point, obviously, you know, Microsoft's like, eh, we've got this thing, we might as well use it. Yeah. Who doesn't love colors? Basically, yeah. That also, weirdly enough, that actually explains something I saw many years ago, and I can remember it in my head, but I never thought about it until just this minute. But I remember actually being in a buddy's place, and his dad had an iMac, and... I remember seeing it in a color that matched the computer, and I thought, weird. He he, Someone actually took the time to pick a color that matched their computer? No. No, as it turns out, it was just, that was automatic. Yeah, I mean, that's a cool idea. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know what the technical side of that. I found a few different articles that was talking about it, but no one ever explained exactly how. Anyway, I'm sure someone will listen to this episode in like three years uh, who worked on it and will tell me. But yeah, someone's totally going to yell at me and say, no, you got it wrong. So besides the design stuff, Internet Explorer for Mac switched to a completely different rendering engine. So before this point, it was using the same Trident engine that IE on Windows used. This time they switched to something called Tasman. I don't know to what degree it was based on the existing IE engine, but regardless, it was a lot of work. It was pretty different than what Internet Explorer on Windows had. This was the first engine in a mainstream web browser on any platform that displayed standards-compliant HTML code instead of the fragmented behavior seen on IE for Windows and Netscape on other platforms. So, like, during this time, there's a more concerted effort to get all web browsers to load pages basically the same. And so this engine in Internet Explorer 5 was pretty far ahead of what the Windows browser had, even for a couple years after this. That engine continued to be used in IE for Mac until the browser was discontinued. And it was also used in some of Microsoft's other Mac apps, like MSN and Entourage Mail, which is the... The mail app they made before they finally put Outlook on the Mac. There were a couple other little changes in the Mac browser. So instead of the Windows Radio toolbar, it had a media toolbar for streaming MP3 and QuickTime media. With There was like some equalizers with that, so it was kind of cool. Also, just, again, like a good encapsulation of where we are in history. One of the big selling points for this browser was that it had a built-in auction manager for eBay. 
<laughs> oh god no so you could check on your ebay auctions without going to ebay oh the integrations yeah so before anyone thinks that bloat in web browsers is kind of a new thing it was not oh, no. not even close <sighs> i it, i completely forgot that kind of stuff was in there i mean i remember it being bloated but not to that extent so when I was reading about this, I found a great blog post from someone named Jimmy Graywall. I think that's, I don't know how his last name is pronounced, but he was on the development team for IE5 on the Mac, and he has a really great blog post. It's in the show notes, but I thought we could read some of it because it's it's pretty interesting. So I'm going to send this to you to read. All right. Sorry, it's a lot of text. Coming from the artist-influenced multimedia world, the visual style Microsoft had in progress for Mac IE 5 looked ancient to me. Everything was the Mac OS Platinum style, shades of gray like cement, with a horde of tiny 16x16 pixel toolbar icons, in 4-bit color with a 1-bit mask, most of which had obviously been designed by engineers and a pixel editor like ResEdit. Meanwhile, Mac hardware of the 1998-1999 era was incredibly vivid, with first the Bondi Blue iMac and then a whole palette of iMacs in translucent candy colors with white pinstriped elements. I had posters of them on my office wall. Eventually the whole Mac range had this same vivid design style, and the gray drab interface of Mac OS 8, which we matched, seemed left behind. Apple's demos at the time of their future OS would, which came to be Mac OS X, also used the same gray look. We were building a state-of-the-art new HTML engine for IE5, Tasman, and I wanted the Chrome to be as modern. I had the idea of making our browser Chrome match the actual hardware you were on. If your Mac's bezel was Bondi Blue, we'd make our UI Bondi Blue. That way our frame around the web page would match the bezel and so would be seen as part of the background and be distinct from the content. By being more vivid, we would paradoxically blend into the background and look more at home. Mac IE lead Steve Falkenberg worked out how to make the system scroll bars match whatever color scheme we were using. He also worked out how to auto-detect what flavor of Mac we were on. It rapidly came together, and in summer 1999, we demoed the secret look new build of Mac IE 5 to Steve Jobs the first person to see it outside Nycris and a few people on the Mac IE team. Steve gave it his enthusiastic approval. Yeah! This is where things got a little surprising. Steve first showed a new build of Mac OS X, which had a new user interface called Aqua. This looked, well, just like the Nycris design we'd been using for a half a year at this point. He then demoed IE5 by showing an experimental carbon port of it on Mac OS X and said the UI look was being inherited from the operating system. It was not. Mac IE5 just looked the same as Mac OS 8 and 9 at the time. Oh well, that was Steve being Steve. So did Steve see our summer 1999 new look demo and tell his team to create Aqua? Who knows? Our stuff was in any case inspired by Apple's hardware designs, so I can't feel too bad about it. So, yeah, that's kind of funny. And you can see this. Um, there's a lot of clips of early demos of Mac OS X. We've, we talked a little bit about it in our Road to OS X series. Initially, 
like for the first year or two after Apple bought Next, they were working on Mac OS X and they were working on a completely new design at the same time, but they had it turned off. So I know there was at least one WWDC or Macworld or something where they showed Mac OS X, but it still looked exactly like the old OS. And then the next year they showed the same OS, but with this new Aqua look. And that's what he's talking about there where they finally have this Aqua look, but Steve was doing a demonstration of IE as it was designed to run on older OS. So it didn't, didn't quite match the cool new look. But when IE5 eventually comes out for Mac OS X, it, it looks good. It fits right in. That is kind of funny because it's one of the it's one of the few times when the two companies actually technically I mean, they didn't work together, work together, but they they clearly had aligned interests to make it look good and and line up. Yeah, well, this was during the time. Apple was contractually obligated to have IE as the default web browser. So it was in their best interest to make sure IE worked well. And it was kind of in Microsoft's best interest to also make a really good Mac browser because of all the antitrust stuff going on. So Mm -hmm. if they can, I, I think he said this in a different part of the blog post where it came up somewhere else, but there was definitely like an interest in making this web browser version very good as evidence of like, look, we like all platforms equally. Look at our Mac browser. It looks great. It, you could change the colors. Yeah. We like all platforms equally, even Linux. Hold on, wait. We <laughs> yeah. <don't>. Nope. <laughs> so yeah, IE5 for Mac was kind of weird. And that's where we're going to leave off this part. And we'll come back for more legal shenanigans in the next part. And... Probably talk about Internet Explorer six. Finally, we're getting there. So, do you do you have anything you want to plug, Cody? Now that we're we're done with this part, uh, well, I should probably plug in a couple of phones. They're nearly dead. Other than that, um, come find me on Twitter. You can find me at Cody underscore Tombs. That's spelled C O D Y underscore T O O M B S. Yes, you're required to follow Cody. It's non-negotiable. Pretty much. Just like Max had to ship with IE, you have to follow Cody. TechTales is also on Twitter at TechTales Show and on Mastodon at TechTales at MAS.TO. The links for those are in the show notes. And also in the show notes are all of our sources. We like to cite our sources here at TechTales. And also links to support the show with real money. And there's an official subreddit at r slash podcast where you can discuss episodes. And thanks for listening. And we'll be back in your podcast feed soon. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.